Hello and welcome to the very first episode of Socialism, the podcast of the Socialist Party. We'll be offering you weekly Marxist analysis of the big issues of the moment for politics and society, from Corbynism to workers' strike action to the NHS to liberation struggles. We'll look at the ideas and debates on how to take the movement forward from a socialist perspective. Over the next few weeks, we'll work through some of the politics that makes the Socialist Party the Socialist Party. We'll have a combination of up-to-date commentary and theoretical discussion, and hope to move on to more detailed debates as we progress. But we also want to hear from you. What topics do you want to hear us discuss? What questions do you have in general or in response to any particular episode? You can email your comments and ideas to socialismpodcast at socialistparty.org.uk. And make sure you click subscribe on your podcast app and check out the episode notes at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash podcast. So, on to our first episode. We're starting at the beginning with the fundamentals of what is socialism and what is the Socialist Party. Over to our host, Sarah Rack from the Socialist Party's Executive Committee. I'm here today with Hannah Sell, who is the Deputy General Secretary of the Socialist Party. And as our first episode, we're going to be discussing what is socialism, what is the Socialist Party, and why have we decided to start this podcast. So hi, Hannah. Hi. Um, So to start with then, uh, I suppose a big part of why we've chosen to start a podcast is the particular period of time that we're in at the moment. um, And that uh, a big factor in that is the era post-economic crisis in 2007-2008. So what do you think has been the impact of that crisis on particularly the interest in and support for socialist ideas? I mean, I think it's been huge. That's our experience. But actually, it's the capitalist experience as well. I mean, even Boris Johnson said that we can't expect young people to support capitalism when we can't provide them with homes. And of course, he could have added, can't provide them with free education, secure jobs, all the other things that capitalism is not providing us with. And that is definitely leading to people starting to look for an alternative to capitalism and increased support for socialist ideas. Um, Mark Carney, as well, the governor of the Bank of England, talked about a fear of Marxism coming back Mm. as a result of the economic crisis. But I don't think it's only that people are um, angry because we've suffered cuts and austerity. I mean, obviously, that's a huge part of it. But it's also because it's absolutely clear to everybody with eyes that we're not all in it together. Mm. And so that's a factor as well. In the course of the 10 years since the economic crisis began then the tiny number of people at the top of society who have got huge amounts of wealth have got loads and loads richer. You know, so the Oxfam figures now are nine men own as much wealth as the poorest half of the world's population. The founder of Amazon got an extra £4.3 billion in the first 10 days of 2017 alone. So there's a few people at the top who've got a massive amount And I mean, perhaps a lot of people listening to this podcast will be too young to have been following politics when the economic crisis started. But what happened is the financiers who were gambling on a huge scale on the world stock markets and who triggered this terrible economic crisis were bailed out. It was socialism for the rich. These days, the Tories try and attack that Labour government 
saying, oh, you know, they spent money when the sun was shining, they spent too much money on public services. Those of us who can remember know that that's just not true. Public spending did not go up dramatically under the Labour government at all. On the contrary, they continued to privatise, they introduced tuition fees, they cut benefits. I mean, it wasn't as bad as austerity in the last 10 years, but it was not good. But what they did do is they continued the deregulation of the city that had been done previous by the previous Tory governments. They thought that capitalism was a wonderful system. In 2007, Gordon Brown said he'd abolished boom and bust and it was all going to be marvellous. And so they presided over this terrible economic crisis and then they did what every other capitalist government in the world did to prevent complete meltdown, they bailed out the bankers. So what is called quantitative easing, but the money that was pumped into the economy by them and by the next governments is equivalent to something like £24,000 for every man, woman and child in Britain. So huge sums of money, but we didn't get any of it. Um, it all went to the finances, the people responsible for the crisis. And to add insult to injury, they then didn't spend that on investing in industry or developing science and technique. They've largely sat on it. Levels of investment are at very low levels. That's obviously a reflection of the sickness of the capitalist system. Um, and that's not changed. I mean, you've asked about... Did the last economic crisis lead to people looking for socialist ideas? And that's definitely true. But there's been no real recovery. And we're heading at some point towards a new economic crisis. Because if you look at the level of debts, debt in the world economy, it's now up to 2007 levels. It's 240% of world's annual production. I might have got this figure wrong, but I think it's $30,000 per person in the world. Most of that now is held by governments because governments nationalise the private company's debt. It's not sustainable. There is going to be a new economic crisis. And even if it isn't as deep as the last one, it'll come on top of the last one from which we haven't recovered. We've had endless austerity ever since. And I think there's no question that that will be one factor in more people drawing socialist conclusions because the idea it was a one-off if we suffered and accepted austerity and tightened our belts, everything will go back to normal. That is going to be shattered because we've had endless austerity and it's not solved any of the problems. And so one um, way that that interest in socialist ideas has come out is a number of left political yeah. um, organisations around the world actually gaining support. And here in Britain, that's most obvious in the huge support that Corbyn has won for his anti-austerity um, programme. Uh, but how is the socialism that we talk about as the Socialist Party different from the socialism that, that Corbyn's talked about, that those other kind of left organisations have talked about? I mean, first of all, obviously, it's a very big step forward that Jeremy Corbyn was elected leader of the Labour Party as a result of people flooding in to vote for him when he got on the ballot paper. And we want Jeremy Corbyn to be the next Prime Minister. We campaigned for him in the snap election. And many of the demands in that election manifesto, which in just a few weeks won an extra three and a half million votes for Labour, so it was very popular, are demands that we put forward in the Socialist Party. You know, £10 an hour minimum wage, free education, mass council house building, rent control. We'd go further on a lot of them. So just the example of free education, we're absolutely clear that student debt should be written off for previous and current students, as well as free education for the next uh, generation of students. 
we also supported the measures of nationalisation he put forward. And for many young people, that will have been the first time they heard about the idea of nationalising things rather than privatising them. So it's a very good thing. But again, we'd go further. Uh, for example, Labour's proposal to nationalise the railways is based on nationalising each franchise as it runs out. But that means after five years of a Labour government, you would still not have all of the railways in public ownership because some of the franchises would not uh, have run out. There's other issues we would raise, and that is related to the question of compensation for the cat fat cats who've been leeching us dry, running these public services and making huge profits out of them. So Labour's called for nationalisation of water. We absolutely agree. It's a good idea, should be done. Uh, research has been done, supported by the water companies, saying it would cost £90 billion to nationalise the water industry. Now, you know, these people are parasites. This was a nationalised industry. They bought it at rock bottom prices and they've made a fortune out of it. So in 2013 alone, the 19 water companies made more than £2 billion in profit. They gave 1.8 billion of that to shareholders and paid just 74 million in pounds in tax. Seven of them paid no corporation tax at all. These people should not be paid the market rate for nationalising the water companies. And John McDonnell has rightly said, well, it will be for Parliament to decide how much you get paid. And we would agree with that. But what should Parliament decide, in our view, should decide not to give a single penny to the fat cats Small shareholders should be compensated if they need the money, clearly, but the fat cat should not get a penny. Now, of course, the capitalist class would scream about that, how, what an outrage it was. I mean, they're screaming about the idea of it being nationalised even if they get paid £90 billion. So obviously they'd go mad about it. And that brings me on to kind of more fundamental differences to our approach to socialism and to that of much of the Labour left. We don't think you can convince the capitalist class who own and control the major corporations and banks that dominate our economy to be nice. We don't think you can convince them that it's in their interest to pay workers a living wage, to provide us all with decent public services, because in the end, their profits come from the exploitation of the working class. That's the reality of the matter. And you can have as many cups of tea with the City of London as you like. You're not going to convince them that they shouldn't try and sabotage measures taken by a Labour government. And all history shows that. Even here in Britain, Harold Wilson attempted to introduce an increase on taxation on the major corporations, and they effectively just threatened a capital strike against what was quite a modest measure, and he retreated and didn't implement it. You go back to 1981, there was a left government elected in France, the Mitterrand government, which was had a more radical programme, actually, than Jeremy Corbyn's programme at this point in time. They came to power, they implemented a bit of it, but French capitalism, the world financial markets, attacked them relentlessly, and within 100 days, they'd retreated and were implementing what today would be called austerity. And then, of course, we've got the much more recent example of Syriza in Greece which was a left government elected on the basis it would stand up against the terrible austerity suffered by the Greek people and was threatened by Greek capitalism, world capitalism, the institutions of the EU has capitulated and now is implementing austerity. Now, what conclusions do we draw from that? You might listen to that and think, well, we might as well give up. Clearly, you can't do anything. 
But that, that's not what we think at all. We are not powerless. However, it is true that only limited power resides in Parliament, in the Palace of Westminster. It's the major corporations, the banks, the people who own industry, the capitalist class, they have ultimately power in this society. And the major institutions, the state and so on, ultimately act in their interests. And they will sabotage the actions of a government that tries to stand up to them. It doesn't mean we can't do anything about it because there's an important alternative power in this country and that's us, the working class, the majority. And we have enormous power potentially. We're the people who make the profits for the capitalist class, who keep society running. When we go on strike, society stops if we do it on a big enough scale. So we do have power. And a Jeremy Corbyn-led government could implement policies that were for uh, the many, not the few. No question about that. But we're not cheerleaders. So in the Socialist Party, we fully support the election of a Jeremy Corbyn-led government, but we point out what is necessary for that government to act in the interests of the majority. And that includes, before the election, deselecting the Blairites, who are capitalist supporters of the capitalist class, and will definitely sabotage a Labour government without any question if it tries to implement radical measures. But it also means, say we get a Labour government, and John McDonnell as Chancellor moves towards nationalising the water industry, and the water industry kick up an enormous stink, say that it's an outrage, appeal to the IMF, etc, etc. Our approach would not just be to wring our hands and say, oh, poor John McDonnell. Our approach would be to mobilise workers, including the workers in the water industry, to demonstrate, to strike in favour of the immediate nationalisation of the water industry in order to exert a counter-pressure. Because actually there can be a point where the capitalist class think, we don't want to lose power altogether. We'd rather let them have a nationalised water industry or a £10 hour minimum wage or whatever else. But beyond that, we would say that, look, we can win things. We've led movements that have won important concessions from governments, from the capitalist class. We defeated the poll tax and got rid of Maggie Thatcher. We can win things, but as long as you've still got capitalism, they're always going to keep attacking us. And a Corbyn government will be consistently under pressure to retreat from the capitalist class. And so what's needed are more fundamental measures, not just nationalising a few bits, but nationalising the major corporations and banks that dominate the British economy. It's actually not huge numbers. I think it's a hundred, the FTSE 100, so the biggest 100 publicly listed companies in Britain, uh, make up 81% of market capitalisation in Britain. So maybe it might be a bit more than 100, maybe it's 120, but it's a small number of companies that if they were bought into democratic public ownership, you could begin to develop a socialist planned economy where all the wealth and technology that capitalism has created could be harnessed on a democratic basis with far more democracy than we've got now, with workers involved in the decisions about the running of society, including production, um, and on that basis, you would begin to be able to build a, a new socialist society. And the things you could do if you harness that technology, I mean, John McDonnell has raised, not as a demand, but as an idea, we could work a four-day week. And it's been laughed at. But actually, why couldn't we have a four-day week? It's perfectly possible. If industry was being run not for profit, but for the good of all, why couldn't we all retire at 60? 
Why couldn't we have a massive change to environmentally friendly, clean production in order to save our environment? All of that could be done if the commanding heights of the economy were bought into democratic public ownership under working class control and management. Okay, so you mentioned a number of times then um, workers and the working class and the working class as uh, you know, the huge potential power of the working class um, in society as a you know, counter to the, the power currently held by um, the capitalist class. Um, and I think some people would accuse us of being old fashioned for the amount of emphasis that we put on the working class and claim that, um, you know, given the, the closure of the mines and big factories uh, and that kind of thing, that things have changed uh, and it's no longer appropriate to talk about socialism in those kind of um, terms. So what do we say to that kind of argument that the, the role of the working class and what the working class is has changed uh, in modern society? Uh, I mean, I think really it's quite a shallow idea. They think when we talk about workers, we mean people in cloth caps who go down pits or have whippets. But you know, we mean the actual working class as it exists. And that has changed in a country like Britain. There's no question about that. Uh, a much smaller section of the working class today work in manufacturing industry, for example, than would have been the case 40 years ago. And there's, there's different reasons for that. The main one, actually, is that capitalism today is the technology that capitalism has created means that uh, levels of productivity, although they're flatlined for decades, but nonetheless are still much higher than they were 40 or 50 years ago overall. So that in Britain now, we have a tiny percentage of the number of car workers, for example, that we had in the 19, early 1970s, but we produce the same number of cars in the country because the machinery can produce more cars more quickly, not owned by British companies, but that's a different uh, question. So that's one issue. And then the other, uh, and by the way, that is an indication of how if that technology was harnessed by a socialist society, we could all have a four-day week or a three-day week, etc. Um, the other side of it is that in order to maximise their profits, production has been moved abroad. So, you know, I don't think anyone could argue that in China there isn't a big manufacturing working class which is currently starting to take strike action on a bigger scale than previously against the conditions that they suffer. But there is a smaller, in Britain, uh, uh, manufacturing uh, working class, no question about that. And there is also a lower level of organisation, and that's related to the last decades, and in particular the role of the right-wing trade union leaders who have failed to lead serious struggles. And what that means is if you're a young person working in Tesco or wherever, it's not necessarily obvious to you why you should be in a trade union, because trade unions are not leading struggle. But there's another side to all this. One is that the driving down of living conditions, not just of the working class, actually, but what was previously the middle class, means that people are poorer and need to fight back more than ever. And increasingly, even people who previously would not have seen themselves as workers are adopting working class methods of struggle to fight back. Look at the junior doctor's strike. That was a militant strike action organised by people who once would have been seen as privileged, but actually now whose paying condition is very far uh, from being privileged. And we are just beginning to see the majority, you know, the majority of young people are in non-unionised sectors at the moment, for the reasons I've given, but we're beginning to see the young, low-paid, poorest sections of the working class 
start to get organised, the McDonald's strike and so on. It's very small beginnings, but that is the music of the future and what we will see, just as we think of the powerful trade union movement of the post-war era, but actually that came out of workers who weren't in trade unions, who were completely unorganised at the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century, but took militant action and got organised, and the same will happen again. And we've got power. You know, the tube workers go on strike, London stops. The working class still has power, it's just a bit less organised at this point in time. Yeah, and I think actually the, the idea that um, it's outdated to talk about the working class is outdated in itself, isn't it? Because since the economic crisis, like you say, people are um, realising that all those contradictions in society haven't been overcome, society is still divided into classes, Absolutely. it's still the case that um, workers uh, have huge potential power that, like you say, they're starting to stretch their muscles to, to use. Um, so we talked about uh, the economic crisis impacting on um, workers and young people looking to left ideas, socialist ideas. Uh, but on the other hand, it's not only been the left that's gained, has it? There's also been gains for the right, particularly at the moment, the populist right, as you might describe it. Yes, no question. And unfortunately, given what we've been through and the circumstances we face, some of that is inevitable. Capitalism is not working, people are poorer, and they're looking for a means to fight back, a way to protest against everything that life has thrown at them. Um, and a section in desperation are turning to various right-wing populists, even far-right ideas in different countries. And actually, the capitalist class aid that from a number of points of view. First of all, because, you know, uh, the head of Amazon, I never know how to say his name, Bezos? Anyway, Jeff Bezos, let's say, uh, doesn't like Trump at all, is always criticising him. But I've got no doubt that he would rather have Trump, a billionaire who is cutting taxes for the major corporations as president, than he would want a socialist who might actually take some of his vast wealth off him, as we've been fighting to do uh, where we've got a councillor in Seattle and he's refused to even pay uh, a bit of extra tax to fund uh, a fund to stop homelessness in Seattle. But anyway, that's beside the point. He will be frightened of socialists taking all of the wealth off him and would much rather have right-wing nationalists in power than socialists. So the capitalist class would much prefer Trump, for example, than to Bernie Sanders having been elected uh, in, in uh, the US. Um, how do we mobilise against the far right and the racists? We absolutely have to. There's no question about that. And they are giving more confidence to racists in society. There is an increase in racist attacks, in nationalism and so on. And part of our job is to fight against that. But in terms of how we do it, we absolutely must not do it by just trailing behind the section of the liberal capitalist class, people like Bezos, who criticise the far right, or the institutions of the EU who say, oh, we're internationalists and we criticise the far right. Because we have to be clear, when they say they're internationalists, what they mean is they support capitalist globalisation, which is the right to exploit people to the maximum possible extent across the whole planet, and it is them getting away with that which has led to the discontent and the potential growth of the far right. And it's only by mobilising a powerful movement against capitalism, against the things that are making people angry, that you'll be able to win away those that are attracted to right-wing or far-right ideas at this point in time. And actually, in a little way, 
even ASNAP election showed it, because I think there was about a million people who'd previously voted UKIP who voted Jeremy Corbyn in that election. And there's no doubt there's potential to do more on that front. And that is a sign. You can win people, but you don't win them by saying, racism's terrible, so we support Hillary Clinton, or you know, we support uh, David Cameron. You win them by taking an independent class position. Okay, so I think that um, listening, there'll be a lot of people who agree with almost everything you've said so far, agree with uh, organising to fight the far right, organising uh, in support of Jeremy Corbyn's programme, but the, the need to kind of try and push that programme further as well, um, uh, agree with the, the strength of working class people, the need for socialist change, but might not see why they need to be organised in a party like the Socialist Party, might think that they're, they're organising for those things um, inside the Labour Party, fighting for a kind of left uh, programme inside, inside Labour, um, or inside the trade union, or in community campaigns. So why do we think that people need to go beyond that and get in, it organised in a, in a party like the Socialist Party? Okay, I mean, obviously there are lots of people who are doing the things that we've talked about and you've just talked about who are not yet members of the Socialist Party. And I would hope, having listened to this one podcast today, might be enough to convince you. But if it isn't, we'd appeal to you to listen to more podcasts, even better, come to some of our meetings and find out more about what we uh, stand for. And we would say it's very important. If you're an individual fighting against austerity, whether it's in your workplace, in the Labour Party, in community campaigns, wherever it is, it's in your interest to join the Socialist Party. And that's both for now, but it's also for the future. In terms of now, we live in a capitalist society and capitalist ideas dominate everywhere. You know, through the media, what you learn in education. In the Labour Party, there's a majority of the MPs who are putting forward capitalist ideas. And if you are to effectively withstand that and fight for socialism, then being part of a party who is in complete agreement on the need to get rid of capitalism and have a new democratic socialist society and the role of the working class in achieving that goal, then that arms you taking part in collective discussion and debate on those ideas to withstand the pressures of capitalism and to fight effectively for socialism. And that you're not just doing that so it can help you in some abstract way for socialism at some future point. It's to help in day-to-day -day struggles now. You look up and down the country, we're not yet a very big party, but we're involved in loads of struggles and we're effective. Just in the last few months, uh, Huddersfield, Chesterfield, Sheffield are places where there have been local campaigns to stop hospitals closing or parts of hospitals, and we have led those campaigns and have succeeded in keeping those hospitals or hospital units uh, open. Uh, in Walthamstow in London, we led a successful campaign against the eviction of tenants uh, who were facing eviction from their social housing. In Birmingham, we played an important role in supporting the bin workers who've been on strike against a Labour council that was threatening them with the sack or with downgrading. Historically, I mentioned this earlier, but we, we were then called the militant, but we led the mass movement against the poll tax, where 18 million people didn't pay it. We got rid of Thatcher, we got rid of the poll tax, but the right wing of the Labour Party were expelling us, because we were Labour Party members still, some of us at that point, for leading that fight, and were jailing people who couldn't afford or hadn't paid 
their poll tax, but we led that struggle successfully. So our ideas do arm us for the day-to-day -day struggles that we're involved in. But it's also for the future, because um, parties like ours, we don't create opportunities to change society. So if you look at that, the last decade or so, for example, uh, the movements that took place in Egypt and other countries uh, in the Middle East, other uh, uh, countries back in 2011, then they were a revolutionary upsurge to fight against the dictatorships that existed and for a new order. No amount of socialists giving out leaflets saying you should rise up would have made that happen. That came from below, from people's unwillingness to put up for a moment longer with what they were suffering. However, what is true is that it's very difficult in the course of a revolutionary movement like that, and that's what it was in Egypt and Tunisia and other countries, to create from scratch a party that stands for a break with capitalism and is prepared to go all the way and develop a, 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 and lead a struggle for a new order. A party can fill out, become a mass party in the course of a movement like that, but if you haven't at least got the beginning that's got some record in the working class, um, then it, it, it's very difficult to create it in the course of a revolutionary movement. And then what happens is the existing parties who want to keep the old order fill the vacuum, step in and derail the heroic struggle of working class and oppressed people. So it is also for the future that it's important to build a party like ours because capitalism is in a crisis and we will see millions of people around the world in different countries saying they need a new world order, that they want to break with capitalism and our party needs to be there for when those events develop. And then that's just linked to that, the very final point I'd make is we, are, we don't only organise here in England or in England and Wales. We also organise in Scotland, but uh, we're part of an international. We're the Committee for Workers International, uh, which organises in around 40 countries around the world. And that's because we understand that socialism has to be an international struggle. Capitalism is an international system. We, the oppressed around the world, have more in common with each other than we do with the super rich in our own countries. And in the end, to build a new democratic socialist world, then you have to struggle internationally. So you talked there about um, our ideas guiding us in how we act and in our successes and so on. And I think at the moment there are discussions around what type of socialism um, should we be fighting for. And there are obviously, there are lots of socialist groups who kind of come from different traditions of socialist yeah. ideas. We describe ourselves as a, a Trotskyist organisation. Why is that? Okay, well, I mean, that's kind of a huge topic, and I think we should have a whole other podcast, maybe several podcasts on it, um, and I don't want to go on too much longer, so I'll be quite brief on this. I mean, I suppose the first, the basic thing is who was Leon Trotsky, um, whose ideas that we would base ourselves on. He was one of the key leaders of the Russian Revolution, and that was the first time that working class people successfully broke with capitalism and began to establish a new society. So in that sense, it's the greatest event in human history so far. But it took place in a very poor country. It was isolated. It didn't spread to other countries, although there was a revolutionary wave around the world, but uh, it, wasn't, uh, it didn't succeed in other countries for reasons I won't go into now. And it degenerated into a Stalinist uh, dictatorship. I would just say 
that although it degenerated, where it was a few at the top taking all the decisions, acting as a brutal dictatorship and accumulating huge amounts of wealth for themselves, it still gives a very distorted but nonetheless real indication of what a planned economy could do. Because this was a very poor country at the beginning and it became a world superpower. And that was the basis of even a very distorted version of the planned economy. It was at huge human cost, huge environmental cost. It would be completely different with workers' democracy. But nonetheless, when it collapsed, life expectancy within five years fell for on average a decade for men in what was the Soviet Union. That gives you an idea of what the return to capitalism meant for working class people in the Soviet Union. Trotsky's most important contribution wasn't the role he played, and this is what he thought himself, it wasn't the role he played in helping to lead the revolution as part of the Bolshevik party. It wasn't the role he played in defending the revolution when it was attacked by 21 capitalist armies determined to crush it, and he helped organise an army against that. His most important role was fighting against the Stalinist degeneration and arguing analysing what had gone wrong, why it had gone wrong, and fighting for workers' democracy and international socialism. He's a heroic figure. He gave his life for that. He was murdered by a Stalinist agent. But it's not his heroism that is why we think his ideas are important. It's what he explained on lots of different issues, which we should go into another time, but particularly on those questions about how uh, you can develop a socialist society based on workers' democracy and how it's possible to struggle for socialism globally. And that's why we would consider ourselves Trotskyists. And, I mean, we often refer to the experience in Russia on a number of different um, issues. And we also refer to uh, what you mentioned there, of the, the collapse of the Stalinist regimes and the impact that that had, not just in in Russia, but um, internationally. Um, but young people today, uh, obviously... Oh, I was born in 89 okay. <laughs> uh, and um, and I'm nearly 30 so uh, people younger than that will have no memory um, at all of even the kind of immediate aftermath of the Soviet Union collapsing uh, but is it still relevant to kind of talk about the change that took place then and what it signified and you know does it ha still have an impact on those people? Yes definitely um, because it ushered in the era that has just gone. Um, when it collapsed, the capitalist class globally went on a major offensive against the rest of us. They were triumphant. I think it was the Wall Street Journal actually had a front page that just said, we've won. And that summed up their attitude. They thought, you know, we've got no threat to us now. Capitalism is the only possible system. And therefore we are free to step up our explo exploitation of working class people around the world and no one's going to fight back against it. And there was a grain of truth in that. People did fight back, but they were able to increase the rate of exploitation of working class people uh, around the world. And under the impact of the confusion that led to, there was a pushing back of socialist consciousness, less people considering themselves socialist, less people considering a different kind of society was possible, and also a lowering of working class organisation. Um, Tony Blair got his grip on the Labour Party and really made it into an out-and-out -out capitalist party for a whole period of time 
under the impact of those events. He would not have been able to get away with it in the same way if it hadn't come in the period immediately following the collapse of Stalinism. So today's the crisis of capitalism in the last 10 years and people, especially young people's experience of that means that people are starting to draw socialist conclusions. But there's no question it's from a lower level because of what went before. But I would also say there's a positive side to it that the idea, the importance of democracy, of socialism being a democratic system that would mean a massive expansion of democracy, those ideas are very important to the new generation, which is still part of being rightly repelled by the vicious dictatorships that Stalinism was. Okay, so we're coming towards the end then. Um, and you've already said we'll obviously have to have other episodes on going into some more detail on the things that you've touched in, and we've already got plans to have uh, episodes on fighting the far right, for example, on Corbynism. Um, we'll definitely have to come back to the Russian Revolution and uh, all of the other things that we've talked about, really. Um, and so why have we taken the decision to launch a podcast now? Well, our party has got loads and loads of ideas which we want to share with as many people as possible and to convince as many people as possible. And we do it by every means we can. So we've got a weekly newspaper, The Socialist. We've got a monthly magazine, Socialism Today. Uh, we have lots of meetings and debate and discussion around the country, particularly coming up, if you're listening to this soon after it comes out, on the 10th and 11th of November, we've got Socialism 2018, which is a major gathering of socialists, trade unionists, worker activists, over a thousand people discussing uh, socialist ideas. So you should come along to that. But we also think podcasts would be a really useful addition to our means of getting our ideas across because you know you could be listening to this while you're doing the dishes or on the bus <laughs> or whatever um, and so that's an opportunity to find out more about our ideas in your own time um, so we hope it's useful but really you know that's that's why we're doing it because we think it's a chance to reach more people okay thanks very much hannah we hope you enjoyed that discussion if you did, there will be loads more like it at that marvellous weekend which Hannah's just mentioned, Socialism 2018. That's two days full of socialist discussion and debate in central London on the 10th and 11th of November. You can see all the details and buy your tickets at socialism2018.net. If you do have any questions or any ideas, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at socialismpodcast at socialistparty.org.uk. Don't forget to check out the episode notes at socialistparty.org.uk where you'll find suggestions of further reading. And hit subscribe now to make sure that you never miss an episode.